0: teaching on acts chapter eight i thought jeremy and bobby the week before that did a great job teaching on acts six and seven and um, we learned about this person who what we call the first martyr of our faith and what was his name stephen stephen and what was the method of execution used Stone. stoning yeah and um remember he goes through uh stephen what gives this very long oration And I thought Jeremy did a good job bringing out last week about how he actually flips it on its head and he turns the table on them and says, you know, you're accusing me of all these things. Let me tell you a little piece of history about how our people have rejected those who have been sent by God. And he flips it on his head and he actually turns it around and accuses them of being disobedient and, you know, completely dismissing prophets and and now the Messiah of Israel has been completely rejected by them. And then Jeremy did a good job of bringing out how sometimes people who like to discredit the validity of the New Testament in the book of Acts will look at Stephen's speech and bring out what appear to be errors in the book of Acts and Stephen's speech. And, and Jamie did a good job of reconciling those what we what may look on the surface like errors. But thank you guys for filling in for me and doing that. Um, today we move on to Acts chapter 8. Are you guys liking the book of Acts so far? You digging it so far? Good. I've always been really excited to teach through this, and I hope we're doing a good job and being good stewards of that. But Acts chapter 8, we're picking up right where we left off. Now, Acts is a history book. History is so fascinating to me, and some of you who know, um, that's what my undergrad degree is in from Southeastern University is history. I just loved history. It always fascinates me that if you think about history, we're kind of swimming upstream in terms of A collective group of people trying to remember events and facts I I like this podcast I I listen to called daily history and every day he puts out a new podcast episode about what happened that day in history and it could be like yesterday was uh, Caesar says the famous line um, the die has been cast and then he crosses um, the river and, and technically invades the Roman Empire and then declares himself dictator of Rome that happened in history like yesterday, but in 49 BC. But I love that. And, but the, doesn't history just kind of slowly sort of lose the, you know, we kind of lose the details as we, as we progress through time. How many of you in the room, let me ask this question. I hope I can come back to this little cap here. Um, I wanted to do this. How many in the room here, raise your hand if you know both of your, you can name two of your great grandparents' names. Okay, you can name two of your great-grandparents. Okay, now raise your hand or keep it up if you, can, if you can name your great-great-grandparents. One, two, three, four, five. Now raise your hand if you can name your great-great-great-grandparents, any of them, one. Okay. So you see how quickly it went from like most people in the room to one person. And that's four generations later. So for me, for instance, I can name my great-grandparents, but embarrassingly, I cannot name my great-great-grandparents. But there's so much rich history there, and, and you know, people of my family, my ancestors, came probably from somewhere in Europe and came to North America and settled, and they probably worked hard jobs, and they probably saved every penny for the next generation, the next generation, you know, they got married and they experienced death and they experienced childbirth and all these things. And I have no knowledge or, you know, remembrance of any of that. And that's so sad, but that's kind of how history works. You know, one of the things I was doing at my mother-in-law's last week, last Saturday, Saturday morning I set up and, and I found this photo album on top of her piano. And I opened the photo album and it was from Stacy's grandmother. And when Stacey's grandmother passed away, my mother-in-law inherited this photo album. So naturally I open it and I'm going through it. And a photo album is basically a history book, but there's very little words in this history book. It's all pictures, right? What is really interesting happened as I'm going through this photo album, I see these sticky notes here and it has these names with question marks. And they're like these unresolved questions that my mother-in-law has about the people in these in these photos she doesn't know in other words she's not sure who these people are but they're in the family photo album and then there was another one here where there was like you know this question right here who are these people or who is that kid there and she doesn't know and i would ask I'd say do you know who this is no that's why i think that's their name but i put it on there and these are people that are just you know a few generations back in my my wife's family yet we are already beginning to their their names and their Their stories are already beginning to slip away into a distant past where we don't remember them very well. But I already did this here. It's like what's fascinating about the book of Acts is that we know more about and more names and geographical locations about the book of Acts in the 2,000-year-old history of our movement than many of us do about our own families. Thanks to the hard work of Luke compiling this very detailed history book. We can name dozens of people in our movement and in our family, so to speak, from 2,000 years ago. That's phenomenal. That's that's really such a blessing for us. But one of the things I wanna do is go through some vocabulary before we get into our reading here. And the first word I wanna teach you this, now how many of you know the Book of Acts was written in the Greek language, right? Written in Koine Greek. And the first word I wanna teach you is Numa Hagion, Numa Hagion. Does anyone wanna guess what that is? Pneuma, it sounds like, uh, what's the disease that affects your lungs? Pneumonia. Pneumonia. Yeah. Pneuma, it means air. It has to do with air. Pneuma is like wind or air. Hagion is like unique or different. Set apart. So what does this mean? Different air. It's the Holy Spirit. Different air. Yeah. It's the Holy Spirit. Now we know, we may know it in Hebrew because you've been here for a while. Maybe you know, uh, Ruach. Hakodesh. But the Greek equivalent to that is right there. Numa Hagion. We're gonna see this time and time again through the Book of Acts, and we already have. What about this word here? Magion, Magion. That is, uh, that, that looks like, you know, the McDonald's theme song. Do you believe in magic, right? That's Magion, is like magic, magic arts. We're gonna see that in today's reading as well. And this one's pretty straightforward. Baptizo. Baptizo, it means to baptize. It means to immerse fully in water. Okay? We're going to see that in today's reading as well. There's five divisions in the book of, of, of Acts chapter 8 that we're going to see. And I'm going to kind of hark on. Number one, Saul or Shaul and his hatred and persecution of the way. Part two of today's reading is going to be the gospel goes into Samaria. Part three will be Philip seeks to buy the power of the spirit. No, nope, that's wrong. Philip doesn't try to do that simon does that's a typo the samaritans receive the baptism of the holy spirit and then philip and the ethiopian eunuch okay there's five divisions you guys ready to get into it Mm -hmm. this is a map of acts chapter eight we're going to see some movement from the city of jerusalem about 40 miles north of samaria and then uh, about 60 miles south and then he's going to go to ashdod this is going to follow the path primarily of one of the original 12 disciples his name is philip Okay. For some reason, Luke makes Philip the main character of Acts chapter 8. and We're going to follow him around a little bit today. So go with me to Acts chapter 8, verse 1. Acts 8, 1. It says, starts off, and Saul approved of his execution. Whose execution did he approve of? Stephen's. Yeah. Who is this Saul? What do we know about him so far? Well, number one, Saul is a Pharisee. He's a student of a great rabbi and likely someone who's sitting on the Sanhedrin named Gamliel, right? He is uh, from Tarsus. We don't know much about his family, but we know that he's a Roman citizen and that he says at some point in his writings that his parents bought their Roman citizen at a great price. But we don't know much about Paul other than that. Why do we go between Paul and Saul? For some in the room, you don't realize this. um, Saul never changed his name from Saul to Paul. You know, Yeshua never changed his name from Saul to Paul. You might be thinking, well, why do we, why do we say that? Where does that tradition come from? And why do we call him Saul? And then later on, we call him Paul. It seems to be after his conversion. Well, it has nothing to do with his conversion. It has to do with the fact that Jews, even to this day, have a Hebrew name and a Greek name, always have two names, okay? So like my, my Greek name, or let's say my Gentile name, It might be like Bradley, but my Hebrew name, the one I did my bar mitzvah ceremony with and the one I was called up to read the Torah from would be like Gavriel, Gavriel Ben David. That's my Hebrew name, but I'm known around my workplace as Brad. You got what I'm saying there? And that, that still is going on to this day. Well, Paul is no exception to that. The Hebrew name Sha'ul, it means the asker of questions, the inquirer. Paul is the Greek equivalent to that. Paul means like little one or student. And really in the Greek, it's Paulos. There's a problem with Saul being a good Greek name because it doesn't end with a U.S. or an O.S., you see, men in the Greek world, in the Greco-Roman world, their names—it was appropriate that their names ended with an os or us. So, like my name being Gabriel, it'd be better if my name were like Gabriel Gabrielos. Make sense? Because it's a male name. Well, Paul would eventually, as he begins to write to a primarily Greek-speaking audience in places like Galatia, places like you know. Um, uh, Philippi and, and you, like Rome, people that are speaking Greek, he's not going to use a feminine sounding name. He's not going to use his Hebrew feminine sounding name. He's going to use his masculine Greek name, Paulos. So because it just so happens that a lot of his epistles are towards the back of our Bible and he's going to refer to himself as Paulos, we started this weird tradition that says that Paul had his name changed from Saul to Paul. He went from Jewish Pharisee saw to Christian Paul. And that's just, there isn't biblical evidence for that. I wanna wanna clear that up for you. But he approved of his execution. The Greek word behind approved here is connected linguistically to the idea of being syndicated. Have you guys ever heard of a, a radio program that gets syndicated? What does that mean? It means that all these other radio stations are now gonna play that radio program, okay? You get syndicated, that means like you're nationally, every radio station is going to play you. In other words, every radio station agrees that your content is worth playing. So what, what it's saying here, what, how we could also translate that is that Paul is heartily agreeing to partner with the execution of members of the way. In other words, Saul is a murderer and an executioner. These are innocent men, women, and children. And he's passionate about it. He's hearty about it, yeah. What's interesting here, what did Gamaliel say about the, the way? You remember Gamaliel? And remember the Sanhedrin got together and Gamaliel was like, be careful. Yeah. Because if you, find, if you fight this movement and it's a move of God, you might find yourself fighting against God. But if it's just a movement of man, it will just go away. But what do we see his student, his, his, his Talmud, Paul, doing? He's going against his own advice. And it says in verse 1, there arose that day a great persecution against the Ecclesia in Jerusalem. Now, the great persecution there is a megas diagamas. It's a, actually a hunting term. It means to track down with the intent to kill, like a hunter would do with like a fox. So in other words, Paul and these other people are tracking down these human beings who are part of the way with the intent to kill them, much like a hunter would do with his prey. And you notice here it says against the ecclesia. What is the ecclesia? Your translations may say messianic community. I don't like that translation. It may say church. I don't like that translation either. Ecclesia is a called out assembly. It's a group of people who are unified in purpose and in mind. And that's what this is. It's not a new entity that Yeshua started. It's, it's the way. Now, where is this happening? It's happening in Jerusalem. But we have a problem here because Acts 1.8 says, Yeshua says, you, the way, will be my witnesses, my martyrs for me in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. But where are we at right now? Only in Jerusalem. In other words, this persecution hasn't spread to other places yet. But then we get to the third part of verse one. And Luke says, they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. You see, the the apostles are going to stay in Jerusalem by and large, even up until like the the destruction of Jerusalem. We're going to see that the leaders of our movement are going to stay there in the capital city of Jerusalem, where they're going to be um, governing our movement from Jerusalem. But the Greek word for scattered here is diaspora. It literally means to throw out seed, to cast seed. So, in other words, you could say, and they were like thrown out like seeds throughout all the regions of Judea and Samaria. This word is the word that's repeatedly used in Matthew 13 when it comes to the kingdom parables. You guys are familiar with that. It's some seed was thrown among the thorns, and some was thrown on the path, and then. You know, that's diaspora. And so Luke is saying that they were scattered like seeds. But what is the seed? Are the people the seeds? The word, the word is the seed. The message the people that, are, that they're carrying, that's the seed. What if we planted gardens or planted seeds like most people do church? How would that work? In other words, what if we just worked and worked and worked and got a lot of people into one place? And, you know, can you picture this? Can you, can you picture me taking a bunch of bean seeds? It's like, like 30 or 40 bean seeds, putting a little hole in the ground, like two inches deep, and then pouring all those bean seeds into that little hole and then burying it in and watering it. What would happen? Gardeners in the room, what would happen? Overcrowding, yeah. <laughs> They'd probably all eventually die, yeah. Let me ask this. Would any of them be fruitful and multiply? Very few, Very few. maybe one or two. They would all be competing for resources, wouldn't they? Mm-hmm. So you can you picture these 40 seeds in the hole, trying to grow, trying to compete for sunlight and resources and room. None of them end up being really fruitful and healthy as plants. They're all competitive. They're all trying to outdo one another. And that sadly is how a lot of us do church or corporate worship. Let's come together and let's, let's all get in one place and never think beyond ourselves. And never go beyond ourselves and think about taking the seed, the message and planting it elsewhere. And some of the most unhealthy congregations I've been exposed to are the ones that don't ever think beyond themselves, but are like, I can't wait till Shabbat rolls around where I can come and I can flex on everybody about how much I know. And I can compete with everybody about, you know, with different resources and and what ends up happening is there's competition and there's fruitlessness and there's death. Let's be a congregation that takes the message out and plants it elsewhere. So one time my wife's grandmother Uh, she asked me, she had a big cow pasture. And uh, she said, you know, this cow pasture is getting overcrowded with thistles. Now for those who don't know what thistles are, they're plants that can get like seven, eight feet tall. And they have all these seed buds all around the top and they're very thorny and painful. And if you just take a bush hog and just mow them down, you've got a problem because all these seed pods that are on there, they're like these fuzzy little seeds they're just going to fly off and just be like dust and they, they get carried away with the wind and they're gonna go all over that cow pasture. And that's what someone has been doing in that cow pasture. They would just mow it and all the thistles were getting fluffed up and all the seeds were getting carried by the wind and it was just making the problem even worse. They weren't getting rid of the thistle plants. What she asked me to do, she's like, don't bush hog it. Would you do me a favor? Would you go and, and take, go to every plant, and we're talking probably upwards of a thousand plants here, Would you go to every plant and take a pair of scissors and snip off that seed bud and put it in a trash bag and then spray Roundup on that plant that doesn't have any more seeds and then bush hog it? And guess what, the next year, barely any thistles, almost completely gone. I was able to take all those seeds and put them in a bag and keep them from being scattered. And so when we experience persecution, we're like that thistle plant in a sense. Something traumatic happens, and we should be the type of people that, in us, we know and can clearly articulate the message, the seed. And wherever we get scattered to, we can take and we can just, okay, you know what? I'm going to plant here, and I'm going to grow, and I'm going to be fruitful. And before long, that field, so to speak, should be full of that plant, full of more seed-bearing plants like that. But what if DMF experienced this level of persecution? So in other words, there's, there's someone who is like, has a vitriolic hatred for our movement here in Dothan, Alabama. And he's going house to house. And he has the, the authorization from the religious authorities here in Dothan, Alabama to go house to house, building to building and hunt us down like animals and throw us in prison and have us stoned. What would it look like? So when, would what we do here today be different and if so, how? We'd have to go into hiding. We'd have to go into hiding, yeah. Where would we hide? In homes. People's homes. What would you do when you get to your homes? How would you communicate? Maybe you'd send some kind of cryptic text or something like that, or use some kind of app that, you know, can't be read by the government or whatever. And you would communicate with each other in this very cryptic way, very mysterious way. And there'd be a group of us, maybe, you know five, six different homes where we're trying to hide and we're trying to get together, would you even go through the pain of, of getting together? Would you load your kids up in the car and drive to a place knowing that I might very well get arrested today and put in prison and it might be the end of my life? Wouldn't we even bother doing that? And you know, one of the greatest, I feel, regrets I have in the year 2020 and granted, we didn't know a lot about COVID-19. It's what it sounds like, what we went through. But yeah, when, when a secular government tells religious institutions they can no longer meet in person or there's a limit or something like that, one of the biggest regrets of my leadership here at DMF has been like kind of going along with that and not leaving it up to the individual whether or not they should come and you know, knowing between them and their doctor whether or not they should come and you know, to potentially be exposed to that. But I believe that that was like a, a test. And if we experienced persecution like Paul is issuing here to the way, things would be radically different. And I want you to at least mentally go through that exercise of saying, number one, would I open my home to somebody if I was gonna face a, fierce, a, a more fierce uh, punishment for that? Number two, what would we do? Would, would there be enough of us in the room where we would know the message? And the message would be taught in that room. And children would learn and be challenged, and they would learn about the Messiah of Israel, and they would know how to better conform their lives around him. Would there be prayer? Would there be singing? Even with no PA system and instruments, what would you do? Something to think about, right? Because that that is the history of our movement. And we live in this tiny little window in time right now where we don't have to face that. What if I told you that little window is closing? I really do believe that. Be thinking about that. So the fascinating thing about our movement in the book of Acts so far is that while there is biblical leadership, the success of the mission and the going forth of the message is not contingent upon these leaders. Historically speaking, our movement is centered on the message, not the personality of the leaders. So our movement is centered on that. We must be able, Marvin must be able to, Diane must be able to, Greg must be able to deliver the message to the world. And carry the torch of our movement as it was carried by the men and women who knew the message in the first century. In other words, you have to be able to understand the message. You have to have been transformed by the message. And you can't help but talk about the message. Because if we really believe in the coming king and the coming kingdom, we cannot help but be heralds of that kingdom. And you want to know everything you can about the king and his kingdom. Do you think, and this is a rhetorical question, do you think you could sit in your living room and successfully articulate the message of the gospel to people who are coming in off the street in the face of fierce persecution and imprisonment? If not, fill in those gaps of your knowledge about the gospel. Come ask me. Study your word. There may come a day, and I hope that I'm wrong, where you may have to end up doing that. And it says in verse 2, devout Now we made it two verses in. Devout men buried Stephen and made a great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the ecclesia. And entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. There was nowhere to hide. He was going into personal homes here. Verse 4. Now there, uh, Now those who were scattered went about hiding in caves and bunkers and Shipping containers and... No, what does it say they did? Like the word. Proclaiming the word. You mean they didn't shut up? That That's me, is just... So here, they're being sown like seeds. There's that word again, diaspora. They're announcing, and the Greek word there for, for word is logos. That's John 1, 1 kind of stuff. In the beginning was the logos and the Logos was with God, and the Logos was God, right? That's what they're proclaiming. Verse five, Philip, who was one of the original 12, by the way, went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed them to them the Christos. Now, wait a second, he's in Jerusalem. Why is he going down to Samaria? Samaria is up here, 40 miles to the north. Why is it down? Going away from the temple. Anytime, geographically speaking, a Jew is going away from the temple, they're going down. It, think of it. Don't think of it like north, south, east, west. Think of it spiritual uh, height of the world, the tallest spiritual point in the world. Anywhere away from that, I'm going down spiritually. Okay, you'll see that all throughout the Book of Acts. We'll see that repeatedly through the Book of Acts. So he's proclaiming the Christos, the Messiah, the Mashiach. Now the city he's going to is Sebaste. The city was likely founded in 880 BC. You guys remember a king named Omri? He made this the capital of Samaria, which became the capital, really, that's anachronistic to say, became the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel and named it Samaria. It remained the capital until its destruction in 722 BC by the Assyrians. So you guys know about, and Jeremy talked a little bit about last week, about the the racial tension between Samaritans and Jews, right? What do Samaritans represent? They represent to the Jews a pollution of the faith. They represent a crossbreeding and kind of like these like, half-bred Jews mixed with Assyrians. They represent to them disobedience and idolatry. And there's a deep-seated and very historical hatred between these two groups of people. So, I see your hand up. And conversation with the woman at the well, you can infer a lot from that because she yeah. Yeah. about where the temple is, where they worship versus where the Jews worship. It's a whole mission. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. The, the, the Samaritans worship on Mount Gerizim and not Mount Moriah in Jerusalem. So what does this symbol, symbolize then? The fact that Philip, one of the original 12, is taking the message into Samaria. That's a very, it's, it's a very taboo move to make, isn't it? And verse six says, and the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. The Greek word there for signs is semion. It is in Matthew twelve thirty nine. Yeshua says, but he answered and said unto them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks a semion and there shall not be given a sign to it, but the sign of Jonah. This is where we get the term, uh, have you guys ever heard of applied semiotics? It's like, if I see this or observe that, it must mean this. It's called semiotics. In Mark 16, 17, Yeshua says, "'These Simeon shall follow those who believe me. In my name they shall cast out demons, they shall speak uh, with new tongues.'" So let's see if we see any of that here in Samaria. Verse seven, look at that. For unclean spirits, and the Greek word for unclean spirits here, remember, uh, Holy Spirit, is Numa Hagion. These unclean spirits are Numata Akatharta. They're spirits of like pollution, basically. They begin to cry out with a loud voice, coming out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. Verse 8. So there was much Kara, joy, in that city. But there was a man named Shimon, S- Simon, who had previously practiced Magos, that, that magic stuff, right? in the city and amazed the people of Samaria saying that he himself was somebody great side note guys be mindful and cautious of anyone who claims to be somebody great yes. with the exception of Yeshua with the exception of the great I am and he was very humble. who was Philip proclaiming here do you guys see it he's proclaiming the Messiah Yeah. In verse five, it says that he was proclaiming the Christos, the Messiah. Who is Simon proclaiming himself? himself. And let me just say this. If you are here in this room right now, or if you're listening to our podcast in the future and you think, man, I like DMF. They seem like a great group of people, whatever. I just I want to come there. I want to be a part of DMF, but you think you're somebody great. Just stay home. Stay home until you come to the recognition of how lost and prideful you are. Then come see us. Come here proclaiming Messiah and his achievements. Matthew 23 says, The greatest among us shall be our servant. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Verse 10, They all paid attention to Simon, from the least to the greatest, saying... This man, Simon, is the power of God, the uh, dynamis theos, that is called great. Verse 11, and they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. That reminds me of Revelation 13. In the end times, there's going to be someone else who comes and amazes people with his magic and his signs. Who would that be? Yeah, the antichrist, the anti-messiah. Verse 12. But when they believed Philip as he preached the euangelion, the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Yeshua the Messiah, they were baptized, both men and women. Thirteen, even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, even Simon was amazed. Let me ask this. Does belief automatically equal rebirth or born again? No. Even the demons believe. See, I can convince you all in this room of a ton of biblical truth and information, and you might believe it. That doesn't mean you've been born again, though. Like Suzanne just said, James 2.19, even the demons believe and they shudder. So I think Simon has not experienced the process of being born again yet. He believes, but you're going to see here that he has a little bit of malintent, doesn't he? Verse 14, now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John. Now, if I asked you right now who the leaders of the way are, who would you say? Peter and John. I would say Peter and John. They seem to be the most prevalent characters and leaders within the way. And they will continue to be so as we go through the book of Acts. Verse 15. They came down and they prayed for them that they might receive the Numa Hagios, the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them. But they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Yeshua. Then they laid their hands on them and they received the Numa Hagion, the Holy Spirit. Now, this is why at DMF, we immerse in water in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then we lay our hands on the individual who was just immersed, and we pray for them to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. It's a very biblical thing to do. Verse 18, now, when Simon saw that the pneuma was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them some money. I wonder how much money. It doesn't say, does it? 19, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Now, are these bad motives? We don't know yet, do we? Is this a bad desire, that anyone receive the Holy Spirit? Hmm. We don't know yet. Verse 20, let's find out. But Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. See, isn't the gift of God just free? Verse 21, you have neither part nor lot in this matter for your heart is not right before God. How does Peter know his heart is not right? Because he's trying to purchase it. He's trying to purchase it, perhaps. Peter... Peter also called some people out in Acts chapter 5. Do you remember them? Ananias and Sapphira. He didn't necessarily know all the details. I believe that Peter here is given a word of knowledge. Just like he did in Acts chapter 5. He knows this man's heart. And through the Holy Spirit is given a word of knowledge about this man. Verse 22. Repent, therefore, of this Wickedness, which is, the Greek is like, it's like a hidden malice. And pray that the Lord, if possible, uh, the, uh, will, will forgive you the intent of your heart. Verse 23, For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now when they had testified and spoken of the of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel to many villages in, this, in Samaria. And Philip in, uh, in the Ethiopian eunuch now, we're going to move on to the next portion of Acts chapter 8. Verse 26 says, Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. Now he's going to go down to, to um, kind of in the area of the, the northern Negev here. And he rose and went, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of, he was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship. Now, pause for a second here. What is this Ethiopian guy doing in Jerusalem worshiping and bringing, I would assume, a lot of money to Jerusalem to worship the God of Israel? He might be a god fear, perhaps. Remember way back in 1 Kings chapter 10, there was a queen called Shiva, the queen of Sheba. Perhaps he's connected with her, but we don't know for sure. But anyways, he's sitting, he was returning, seated on his chariot, and he was reading from the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, now here again, this is speaking to the personhood of the Holy Spirit. The spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now, the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Isaiah 53 verses seven through eight. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter, like a lamb before its shearer is silent. So he opens not his mouth in his humiliation. Justice was denied him who can describe his generation for his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip about whom I ask you, does the prophet say this about himself or someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture He told him the euangelion about Yeshua, the good news about Yeshua. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, see, here is water. What is preventing me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord, Harpazo, it snatched Philip away violently. And the eunuch saw him no more. And he went on his way rejoicing, but Philip found himself at Azotus. And as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. So let me ask this: Why did Luke bother preserving this story, this odd story, an interaction between Philip and an Ethiopian eunuch? Any guesses? Well, yeah, Suzanne. Yeah, yeah. So maybe he's teaching us a lesson about divine appointment and maybe, maybe that's what's going on. Well, turn with me to Isaiah chapter 56. Isaiah 56. I think, I think uh, Luke is trying to, trying to send us a message. Isaiah 56. And look at verses 3 through 5. Isaiah 56, verses 3 through 5. And we can back up to verse 2. Happy is the person who does this. Anyone who grasps it firmly, who keeps the Shabbat and does not profane it, and keeps himself from doing any evil. A foreigner, like an Ethiopian we could say, joining Adonai should not say, Adonai will separate me from his people. Likewise, the eunuch should not say, I am only a dried up tree. For here is what Adonai says. Even as for the eunuchs who keep my Shabbat, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant in my house, within my walls, I will give them power and a great name. Greater than the sons and daughters, greater than sons and daughters. I will give him an everlasting name and they will not be cut off. Do you think the eunuch maybe saw himself as a fulfillment of this passage i mean he's just reading three chapters prior to it possibly Possibly. you think philip saw that they were fulfilling this passage and luke is like yeah i need to put this in the book of acts so that we can have proof here that even the eunuch the foreigner who joins himself to the covenant holds fast and keeps the shabbat keeps from profaning it even he will be given a great name and here we are 2000 years later in Dothan, Alabama, talking about this character that was found on the side of the road sitting on the back of a chariot. Pretty incredible, right? Let me ask this, are there still Jews and Christians in Ethiopia? Yes. Yeah, there are. There used to be a very large Jewish community in Ethiopia. Many of them have made Aliyah to Israel and now there are some 140,000 Ethiopian Jews living in Israel. Uh, Community community leaders estimate that roughly 6,000 others remain behind in Ethiopia, and they practice an interesting kind of pre-rabbinic form of Judaism. But as we wrap up Acts chapter 8, I want to give some practical application now, if I can, from Acts chapter 8. We talked about history. On a historical note, like I said, Saul's name never changed. He did not switch religions. That's a, that's a common misnomer to say that Saul somehow switched religions and joined this other new religion. That's just not the case. We want to make sure that we're teaching good, provable, and biblical information. We also learn from Acts chapter 8 that forced scattering, diaspora, it should mean, if everyone has the message and understands the message, that should mean exponential growth for us. Think about that. If all of us in this room understand and can effectively articulate and go and, and win other people over for the kingdom, if we ever got shut down and the government said you can no longer meet together, that should mean for us oh, an opportunity. We will grow. Because we will take it into homes, we will take it into parks, we will do whatever we need to do, and we will grow even faster then. We're like scattered seeds. That's how we should look at it. Then we also learn from Acts chapter 8 that the gifts of the Spirit are not ours to buy, but are God's to freely give. We also learn from the, the Acts chapter 8 that immersion in water is a central, yet not salvific component to our process of being born again. I want to read this. I got it up on the slide here. This is from the Didache, which is some date back as early as the 1st or 2nd century apostolic document. And they say, concerning baptism, baptize this way. Having first said all these things, baptize into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. In living water, which is like um, river water, spring water, ocean water. It's water that is moving and isn't stagnant. And he says, but if you have not living water, baptize into other water. And if you cannot in cold, baptize in warm. Now, that's interesting. So they they want you to baptize in cold. (laughs) How many of you were baptized in the spring up there, blue spring? Yeah, that's some cold water, right? (laughs) But if you have not either, pour water thrice upon the head into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But before the baptism, let the baptizer fast and the baptized and whatever others can, but you shall order the baptized to fast one or two days before. Let me ask this, how far have we drifted from this? If a member of the first century way walked in through those doors over there and sat down in our gatherings, or they maybe went to our mikveh picnics that we have up at Blue Spring, would they feel at home? Would they know what's going on? Or would they be really lost and confused? <laughs> A modern day believer might be lost and confused. Yeah. I think I, I'm proud to say that, I mean, if you walk, that's why I love having all the photos that Jackie frames and hangs on the walls. If you go over there and just look at that, that's our history, is it not? Mm-hmm. That's history that's speaking to us from those walls. Many of those photos, and I might say most of those photos, are us immersing people in water. And that is just so beautiful to see as we walk through to go get food and break bread together that we see this is what we're here for. And yeah, I, I'm proud to say that I think if a, a member of the first century way came into our gatherings, it might be different. It's definitely going to be different. They didn't have guitars back then. They might like it though. But we're going to be praying a lot of the same prayers that they pray in the same language in which they would have prayed them. We're going to be reading about their history and reading off some of the names and the people that they met and know. We're going to be breaking bread together. We're going to be, we're going to be blessing the name of Yeshua as we break bread. I think they'll feel at home. I think, they would, I think they would approve of what we do. And I kind of want to keep it that way. So I'll, I'll cancel that smoke machine order on Amazon. Bobby, maybe you can take care of it. I'm kidding. But the other component of what we do here too is it's very much a co-op of people. And we have a group of people here, you all, you, you see a need and you fill it. You know, we have no one on paid staff. Um, we've been that way for five years of our history as a congregation. And it's like, we all just pitch in and we just make this work. And when we get together and we worship, it's beautiful. And it's, you know, it's, it's like giving glory back to God. And I think that's a beautiful model that we can take and we can emulate. In other words, there's no competition. If someone has the ability to speak and, and teach and, and, and plant a fellowship, then we can look at them and say, yes, by all means, let me teach you how to do that. And let's send you out to do that. That would be amazing. And there's no competition whatsoever because if there's competition, like I said, all those seeds that are stuffed in that hole together, we don't wanna do that. We wanna take seeds and push them out, right? Sow them out. In as much, moving on lessons from Acts 8, in as much as we want all the good aspects of pushing our way back to the first century model, there will inevitably be a Simon or two. So be on guard for pride. Be on guard for gossip, slander, inner malice in you and your family's hearts. The story of Simon in Acts 8 teaches us that the kingdom of heaven is not about gaining power, but it's all about giving it up. So I'd like to segue into, before we do Q&A here, um, I think it's going to be March the 5th is our first emerging leaders class. If you have a desire or a call, I should say, to be and serve in any capacity as a leader in the body of Messiah... Come to that, it'll be 12 weeks long and I will pour everything I can into you about how to lead, how to, you know, if, like I said, Saul comes in and scatters us all right now, you would have a better, you'd have more confidence of when you go into your living room, what it would look like and how you would lead those people and how you would teach the message and how you would resolve conflict, how you would collect money and distribute it to those who have need. We're gonna go through all those different scenarios um, in that Emerging Leaders class. So come to that. I love it. But Q&A, what, what, uh, what questions or comments do you guys have about Acts chapter 8? Yeah, Karen. Can you explain the difference between baptism and mikvah? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, mikvah is a Hebrew word, and it just means a gathering place of water and an immersion in water. It's the same thing. Baptizo is a Greek word. It basically means the same thing. Um the idea of a mikvah goes way back for thousands of years within the Jewish faith, and um, there's different reasons one would do a mikvah, but it's all connected to, like, ritual purity or repentance or conversion Do what? That That is baptism, yeah So baptism is not a new rite whatsoever. It's something that is well entrenched within Judaism for thousands of years um, and still is to this day Now, we look at it differently. For instance, um, a uh, a woman might a woman might do a mikvah once a month, uh, whereas we would look at a mikvah as something you do upon coming to faith in Yeshua, and then that's a very that's a conversion mikvah. In other words, you're com- you're becoming a child of the kingdom, and then you could do mik- mikvah oats. For purity purposes, later beyond that, and that those are more private things that you would do. Um, but yeah, so we, we primarily focus on a, a mikvah or a baptism of conversion into becoming a child of Abraham, essentially. Does that answer your question? Yes Yeah. <laughs> Any other questions, though? Yeah, Suzanne, that's what I'd comment um, yeah. something that came to my mind as you were talking, and by the way, excellent. This was an excellent. Oh, well, thank you, appreciate um, it. So, you know, even today, among the Jewish people, the, the comment is oftentimes made um, that they are in the diaspora. Yeah, yep. And Yeah. they were in the diaspora yeah and diaspora is that greek word the scattering they were being scattered abroad yep. persecution pogroms, the holocaust etc and what came to my mind was in a very real sense we could even go further and say that God was scattering the Jewish people from the beginning with the Assyrian captivity and so forth and so on who yeah. spread the message Yeah. Yeah, only knew of paganism at that at that point Yeah. Yeah. So and even in modern times the people were being scattered to spread the word about God. Yeah. Now whether they always did that, not necessarily, but you know, we do have a lot to thank the Jewish people for. You're absolutely right. Yeah. And and next week we're gonna be introduced to a new character. Well, I guess I can't say new character, but our, our character saw he's going to expand quite a bit and the amount of attention that he gets from Luke. But we saw today how it went from being hunkering down in Jerusalem to now let's take it out to Samaria and all of Judea. It's beginning to spread now. But sometimes we need that persecution to kind of, you know, get off of our, our seats and, and go take the message, right? Carry the message forward. Yeah. A messianic community. Yeah. It's interesting. And that they went about proclaiming the gospel.
1: Yeah. It wasn't like they were just hush hush about it. They were announcing. Another one said announcing. Yeah.
0: The good news. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. Xavier, i saw you again. First of all, great message. Um, Thank you. Second, so when it comes to the Didache, uh that, that document, you know, the Catholics kind of will call it theirs. Yeah. And now today, Yeah. is that kind of more where you fall or are you not sure I, I'm, not, I'm not super hung up on it um, on the ownership of it but I, I find it interesting it's definitely a window into the historical movement that either is third to first century in that era so I think it's it, it fascinates me as a historical document but isn't like a I wouldn't look at it as like a very hard and fast prescriptive document does that make sense yeah, hope that answers your question. Uh Jackie and then Jason. Uh I have one question or um observation. So it says Philip uh, and Judy both went underwater during the mid quarter. Was that common or they What verse was that? I must have missed that. You're saying they're both going underwater? Oh, so the, what I pictured there, and I, I could be wrong and you could be right. Uh, what I pictured there was like, um, you know how we're all standing around Blue Spring and there's like a you know, considerable elevation between the land and the water. And so when I, whenever we immerse people, I go down into the water as well. I'm not necessarily going down and dunking with everyone that I'm immersing, but I'm just going into the water. That's kind of what I pictured, but I could be wrong. Yes, that's correct. Um, I, and I was just curious about like, when that would have been written for a portion, but it's not. Yeah. Uh, for Can this... journey would have anything to do with any base going there? Sure, yeah. I think he's probably returning from uh, Shavuot. Yeah. Um, so she's asking... Uh, your question about Isaiah 53, for those who don't know, you know, the Torah portions are divided up into weekly portions that we read called, you know, Parshiot. Then there's a Haftorah portion that is from the prophets. And it doesn't, it also leaves other other prophets out as well, other, other chapters of Isaiah out. But Isaiah 53 is conveniently left out of the reading, uh, the cyclical reading within the synagogue system. Some people point to malintent of trying to suppress the truth of Isaiah 53. And others others say, well no, it was just it was left out because there's just Isaiah is too voluminous to, to fit in the reading cycle. Um I I tend to side with it was intentionally left out. That's where I side, but um it's a very complex question too. So also in the big what's the death and what's the when you went under and back up you were born in um, well, even in Judaism, yeah, to undergo a nikvah through conversion. Let's say you're a Gentile wanting to convert to become a Jew. Yeah, it was the idea that like, you were being born again. You were becoming a son of Abraham, essentially. But that was not a new concept. No, it wasn't a new concept. So when Yeshua says you have to be born of water and of spirit, um, yeah, I think, I, think, I think a new concept might be that uh, he's broadening the invitation to the nations to come and be converted um, to be born again to be a a son or daughter of Abraham but no it wouldn't have been a new concept to them that's over yeah 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 and immersion in water is basically just you're re-entering the womb Um, you're going back into the water of the womb and you're coming back out in new creation. You're being born again. Um, But also, I like to talk about how it's a pointing forward towards the resurrection of the dead Um, and how one day you will inhabit this uninhabitable space and then you will rise again. Um, You're professing your trust and your faith and belief in the resurrection as well. So, any other questions, though? I saw a couple of other hands. Patrick. farmers would have bite the fields after they would harvested it, and they would just move all the way through, and then it would be black for another few months or so. It's all Control that's right. And so after that, what happens is the ground becomes a lot more further for the next crop, even crops to come in the future. I think that parallels pretty well with persecution. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, a lot of uh Yeah, they're very fertile. yeah, a lot of forestry people tell you too like you know when you do controlled burns it actually is good it's healthy for the you know they used to say Florida, say the state of Florida before it was really inhabited by humans used to burn completely over like three times a year uh, just from different lightning strikes and stuff and and now it barely does that at all but it's actually good you know like you said it's actually good for the resetting of the the habitat and the ecosystems of a forest, or in that case, a field of weed or whatever, um, is good for it. Yeah. It's painful in the process, right? But it's healthy. Anything else? Any other questions? Yeah, Diane. Yeah. yeah, so she's asking, what do you say to people who have been baptized, but they said I was baptized as a child or something like that? And they say, so I am saved. Um, to that I say, uh, Philippians 2 says uh, to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And, you know, I, I don't ascribe to that. Like, I believe that, you know, you... you uh, Having been redeemed, um, you can lose that redemption in that place in the kingdom based on you um, knowingly sinning or turning your back on the things of God. Um, I believe that that's, that's definitely possible. A just God would, would um, do that. But um, yeah, for that, I would say uh, to, to share with them the word of truth and to bring them under conviction using the word of God. Um, and to show the Word of God how it is in misalignment with their life as it is right now. And, you know, Galatians 5 and the fruit of the Spirit, for instance, and say, This is the fruit of being born again. Do you see this in your life? And hopefully, it's somebody that you know and have a relationship with and love. And, I think kind of shaking people and and jolting them out of that sort of placated like I'm I did this, I punched the card, I'm good to go is is a very tricky thing to do but if done prayerfully and with the assistance of the Holy Spirit can be done well and can bring a brother or sister, you know, closer to Yeshua because of that. But, yeah. You know. Does that answer your question? Yeah. And there's been many people who I've immersed that baptized that um, that have gone, you know, they were baptized much younger and they lived a wild life. And now they're returning. They're making repentance, teshuvah, and they want to be immersed again um, because they've repented. So definitely. Yeah, Howard. I, I think you just have to uh, always remember that the, the physical act of being done from the Lord brought back There's mm-hmm. nothing to do. Yeah. Yeah, perfect. Yeah, you nailed it, yeah. And I always say that before we immerse people. I say, what you're doing is not magical. It has no power to wash away your sin. It's just a, a physical thing that represents an inward spiritual dimension of you. So, yeah, thank you. Thank you. Good point. Yeah, yeah. It talks about being with him. Like, we're mm-hmm. dying to our old life, ourselves. Yeah. Yeah, Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, you're entering an uninhabitable space in in a sense, dying and coming out alive in him. And even within rabbinic Judaism, it's taught, too, that if you were to undergo ritual immersion for the point, for the sake of conversion... When the rabbi who oversees that that immersion is more is, it looked at more of, of, of a father than your even your biological father. So you're being born again to a new father, so to speak. Even within rabbinic Judaism, that's that's a very common thought. So it's the idea of being baptized into the name of Yeshua, you're coming up like sons and daughters of Yeshua, so to speak, spiritual sons and daughters of Yeshua being born again with a new allegiance on you. Any other questions though? Great questions. And... Okay. Well, let's say the blessing over the uh, fruit of the vine. Baruch Adonai Eloheinu melech Borei Amen Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who creates the fruit of the vine. say the blessing of the bread, and I think Anthony's going to lead us in the uh, of benediction here shortly. <laughs> Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth